Macworld Podcast number 390 for January 14th, 2014. Brought to you by GoToMeeting, the powerfully simple way to meet online, and Ting, mobile that makes sense. Welcome to another Macworld Podcast. I'm Chris Breen. If you've browsed Macworld.com over the last couple of months, you've seen one name pop out at you time and again, Kirk McAlern. Kirk has not only introduced a series about using the command line, but is our regular Ask the iTunes guy. Given everything that he's done lately, I figured it was time to bring him on to talk about the stories that he's been following. Let's get started. I'm joined by senior contributor... Kirk McLearn, because, well, he's been pumping out scores of articles lately, and he has a lot to say. Welcome back, Kirk. Hey, Chris. Nice to talk to you again. I want to start with your series on the command line. We've seen a few of these in the last month or so. So first, a basic question. One reason people flock to the Mac OS is to get away from typing commands into terminal windows. So why do it now? In the early days, if we go back 20 years or more, um, the advantage of what was called Mac OS or System 7, System 6 back then was that you didn't have to type commands like in MS-DOS. And we've gotten really used to this over the years. Now, people who've been using Macs for, let's say, more than a dozen years probably remember a program called ResEdit, which would let you hack parts of the system and make changes to things that Apple didn't want you to change. Um, the command line is similar. It lets you get under the hood, and it lets you sometimes make alterations to the way things work. Um, I'll give you a concrete example, which I just came up against the other day. Since is it since Lion OS 10 stores different versions of files you create. So every time you save a file, it stores a version and it auto saves, and it keeps these versions, and they can fill up your disk and. You know, in all these years since they introduced it, I've never once gone back to one of these versions. So I wanted to find out how to turn this off. Um, Apple doesn't give you an option to do it, but opening up Terminal, which is the utility that you use to type in the command line, and copying some things off a website, I was able to send a command to my Mac and tell it to stop recording versions for me. Now, that, that's one example of many kinds of things you might call hidden preferences. Um, the Mac OS X Hints website that Macworld uh, oversees has hundreds of examples of that. Um, back when we had the first, let's see, when the dock came out, and if you put it on the side of your screen, it was in 3D, so there was a command to make it 2D. Um, there was a command to stop icons bouncing in the dock in the early days of OS X when an icon could bounce 20 times before an app launched. Um, you may have a command to tell Safari to do something all the time or to not do something all the time. There are tons of these commands, and well, if you want to be able to make this kind of change to your Mac, this is the only way you can do it. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about the history of the command line. Why was this developed in the first place? Well, this is how computers worked in the beginning. Um, we're not talking about early computers with punch cards and all that, but the first interface to a computer was a command line interface. Um, I'll just make an aside. Any science fiction fans would definitely want to check out Neil Stevenson's book from maybe 91. It's a long essay called In the Beginning Was the Command Line, where he outlines the entire history of computers and how we got from the command line to what then turned out to be, at the time, the early graphical user interfaces. 
Um, in the early days, you would type in a command on a terminal, and a printer would print out the results. In fact, there is a command you can type in terminal. It's the letters PWD, which stands for Print Working Directory. And while today it tells you what directory or folder you're currently in in terminal, originally it was actually printing something onto a printout that you would look at um, behind the console that you were typing in. So the early days of Unix were based on commands, and there are hundreds of them that are built into any form of Unix, and Mac OS X is you may know is built on top of a form of Unix called BSD. And each of these commands generally does one thing, very specific. The CP command copies file, the MV command moves files, the RM command removes or deletes files. I told you about the PWD command, it prints the working directory. The CD command changes directory. Um, only a handful of these commands are actually what we would call today apps. Um, that do multiple things. It could be text editors, for example. But Unix was built on that building block system with hundreds of little commands that do things, and you had to learn these commands to be able to use a computer back in the day. Now, a lot of people are under the impression that the command line is best left to geeks, and I think some people listening now are going, I'm never going to touch this thing. Are there any reasons that less experienced Mac users should venture into Terminal? Well, as I said, there are some preferences and settings that you can only change from the command line. And this goes beyond just OS X. Um, you'll find the occasional app that has, uh, they'll call them hidden preferences or power preferences or advanced preferences. And they'll tell you how to do things with the command line. Um, you may actually need it one day if you have to troubleshoot your Mac. S some listeners may have had a situation where their Mac boots and it doesn't boot correctly and instead of seeing little icons for usernames or seeing their desktop when it starts up they see a bunch of text you know the kind of text you see scrolling down the screen in some sort of a movie where there's a hacker typing on a computer screen um, that means that your Mac hasn't booted correctly and you're in the, the basic command line interface um, I've had situations with Macs over the years where Apple technicians calling up AppleCare for support would direct me to run commands to troubleshoot or to repair things like that. Now, that's an extreme. Um, but there are, in, in, the, in the handful of articles that we recently published on Macworld, I give some examples of things like you want to delete some files that are in the finder. Every once in a while they get stuck and you can't delete them. You can use the terminal and you can do this really quickly. Um, you can copy multiple files, move multiple files, change a file name. It's not something most people want to do, um, and, and I'm not trying to convert people to the command line, but if you ever want to do advanced things on your Mac, it's good to at least be familiar with Terminal. So if you do see an article, um, in, for instance, one of your Mac 911 articles, you often cite command line commands, um, users need to not be afraid of the command line and not worry too much that bad things can happen. Okay, well, what kind of precautions should they take when they're using the command line? Well, the safest thing is to not use the command line. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> things can go wrong, um, but let me give you an example of some of the commands that people may run, let's say if they're on the Mac OS X Hints website. So, I don't know. There, there's a, a command that's called defaults, and this is pretty common to change hidden preferences. So, you'll type defaults right, and then a preference name, and then you'll type something with either yes or no. 
Um, this was the command I used, I mentioned earlier, to turn off um, recording versions. So if I run the command with a no and something happens, I can run the same command again with a yes at the end, and that will fix it. That will put it back in its original state. Um, the other thing to be very careful of is when you're deleting files in particular, there's no trash from the command line. You don't move them into a sort of a limbo um, waiting for them to be emptied. They get deleted, um, and they're gone. They're gone. I mean, you could get them back with a data recovery program, but you don't want to go there. Um, so as I explained in the article about deleting files, there's a little thing you can type, dash I, the I stands for interactive, that when you're deleting a file um, or doing all sorts of other operations, Terminal will ask you, are you sure you want to do this? And you have to either type the word yes or the letter Y. Even with the experience I have with the command line, which I've been using for, I don't know, a dozen years, I still use that interactive option because it's just too easy to type and make a typo and press return and delete the wrong file. So are there commands that you can use to make this a little easier, uh, some kind of techniques you can use so that you're not going to make a mistake, for example, when writing the path to a file? Yeah, a file path can be very long. Um, you may see a file in a folder on your desktop. The actual path to the file in Unix speak, the path is the address, um, is going to start with a slash. It may start with the name of a hard disk if it's not your startup disk. Then a username, then a folder, and a subfolder. So it can be very long. Um, so let's say you want to delete a file, and you type rm space dash i space. So rm is the remove command. You type a space before any options or flags that you want to use. Then you type a dash. The i was interactive and a space. So rm space dash i space. Instead of typing the path for a file, you can simply drag a file or even a folder into the terminal window, and it'll pick up that file path for you. It doesn't matter how deep it is in, in the entrails of your Mac. Um, the whole path will show up, and this makes it an awful lot easier to avoid typos and to avoid accidentally typing, um, I don't know, budget 2013 instead of budget 2012 for the one you wanted to delete. So far, as you say, you've talked about some of the basics in these, and I hope these articles continue. Where would you like to go from here? Well, the, the next step, so in the early articles, I introduced people to how, what the file hierarchy is, how folders look. You're used to seeing folders in Windows, and you have that metaphor in your mind, whereas in the Unix world, it's a slash folder, slash folder. Um, I introduced people to moving around in these folders. Instead of double-clicking, you type. Um, copying and moving files, deleting files, creating directories, which is the Unix word for folders. Um, in future articles, I want to talk about time-saving techniques. So I didn't discuss the drag the file to the terminal window. Um, I didn't discuss tab completion, where if you're in a folder and you want to type the path of a file, you can type the first couple of letters and press the tab key, and terminal will type as many characters as possible that are unique. So if you have report 2013 and report 2012 and I type REP tab, it'll type report 201 and then it'll show the two possibilities. And then you type the next character to get the file. So there are lots of ways you can work with terminal where you don't have to type everything out. Um, there's a history command. If you press the up arrow key in terminal, 
you'll go through the history of commands you've run. It makes it very easy to run a command again, or, as I mentioned earlier, to change a yes command to a no command, to re, to bring the whole command back um, to a place where you can edit it and just change a couple of letters in it. Um, there are a number of other time-saving things. There are all sorts of different little commands that are very useful, um, and there are some that are fun. Um, there are some you can use for troubleshooting, some you can use for to making things simple, um, and there's text editors. There's Vim, there's VI, right. there's Emacs, and that's a whole world of its own out there. That's a good point. There are a lot of fun things in Terminal. Uh, for example, there's some games buried in there. And I think it's kind of interesting. To, it gives you a look into the mind space of the people that were creating these tools back in the day. Is there a Lord of the Rings timeline? Um, there, are, there are things that can do ASCII art. And some of these things are just left in sort of as Easter eggs. Remember back in the day, we used to all freak out when there was some new Easter egg in a program. That doesn't seem to be yeah, a thing yeah. anymore. Um, but there are all sorts of things hidden. There are hundreds of commands, probably several hundred. I've never counted. And what's interesting is that when you look at... So when you want to learn to how a command works, there's a command called man, which is short for manual. And if you type man space, then the name of a command, terminal is going to give you not a full manual, but a, a page or two or more, depending on the command, telling you how it works. And when you look at some of these, you can see how old some of the actual commands are. Um, some of them date back 20 years. Um, I'm just going to type man cd into my terminal window. Um, cd is the change directory command. And it looks like, well, it's a very long one. Let's see, it first appeared, well, the latest version is 2005. So the version that's in Mac OS X, it hasn't been changed since 2005. It first appeared in B in FreeBSD 3.4. Now, we'd have to look up when that version came out. But I'm guessing this goes back 20 years, if not more. Um, so there's a lot yeah. of very old stuff. And these aren't things that need to be updated. They work. There's no reason to change them. We'll be back with Kirk after this word from GoToMeeting. I have a tiny secret to share with you. I visit Macworld's offices maybe twice a year. Yep, I'm what is known as a remote worker. And I'm part of a growing legion of people who work partially or wholly off-site. But there's one issue all companies with off-site workers face, how to meet for the purposes of sharing ideas and solving problems. I'd like to recommend one avenue that I found helpful. Go to meeting with HD Faces by Citrix. The GoToMeeting folks dubbed this the powerfully simple way to meet online for good reason. It's a cinch to sign up from your computer or mobile device and be collaborating in no time. And while you are, you can share screens in real time, control another participant's computer, flip on your webcams to see each other in HD, include those people who have audio-only access, and record the whole thing except for the HD Faces feature for later viewing. Need to mute your mic, take yourself off camera, chat privately with another participant? It can all be done with ease. I urge you to check it out. Start your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting today. No credit card required to get started. Just visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code MACWORLD. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code MACWORLD. And now back to Kirk. 
All right. Well, speaking of changing, I'd like to change the subject and talk to you as the iTunes guy because you're the Ask the iTunes guy. Yep. So let's talk iTunes and music. iTunes Match is now just over two years old. I know you weren't entirely thrilled with it when it first came out. So what do you think now? <laughs> um, my opinion hasn't changed a lot. Um, I think about a year after iTunes Match came out, I wrote an article on Macworld, something like iTunes Match one year later, um, and I found that things hadn't changed. Just a couple of months ago, I deleted my iTunes Match library. It's not my main library. It's a testing library. And I deleted it, and I re-added a whole lot of music to see if anything matched better. Um, some Macworld readers may remember that when iTunes Match came out, Lex Friedman did a test on Twitter asking how many people had the Beatles Abbey Road album and how many of those people couldn't match She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. And, well, almost everyone but me, for some reason, had that problem. Mine matched, and other people's didn't match, and it may be because I had the more recent box set, the more recent master or whatever. Um, when I put in all the music again, nothing matched any better than before. In other words, it looks like the matching algorithm hasn't been improved or the matching database hasn't been improved. And I'm, we're not really sure what works on the back end. Um, I put some jazz recordings in just last week. There's a, a box set of Miles Davis uh, early Columbia albums in mono. It's its first nine albums. And so I'm just looking now. On the album Miles Ahead, out of ten tracks, nine got matched. One didn't. Um, on the album Milestones, um, two matched and four didn't. Um, kind of blue, they all matched. Uh, which is funny because it's not the same mix as what's available. Porgy and Bess 4 didn't match. Um, one didn't match, and Someday My Prince Will Come. And it goes on like that, where this is music that's sold on the iTunes store, yet it's not matching. Now, the matching shouldn't depend on how you rip your files. Um, I rip them in iTunes Plus format because it's the most convenient. Many times when I put an album in, I find things like that, that most of the tracks match, or some of them match, but all of them don't. There are plenty of albums where everything matches, but there's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes classical music matches really well, um, and, you know, why shouldn't jazz match? Why do Grateful Dead things match very, very well, um, surprisingly, and some others not? It's just, it's quite perplexing. For instance, I'm looking at The Grateful Dead's American Beauty, um, arguably their most popular album because it's the one with Truckin' and Ripple and you know great mm -hmm. songs like Friend of the Devil, Sugar Magnolia. Nine songs match, but Truckin' doesn't match. And this, is, this happened in the very beginning with iTunes Match, and it's still happening now. Maybe that's because people have heard Truckin' far too many times and just wanted to go away. <laughs> Well, it doesn't explain the Beatles. It doesn't explain the Miles Davis, which right. is stuff that's sold on the iTunes store. Um, other than that, iTunes Match generally works well. Um, I find it a little irksome in updating. So I use an, an, an iPod Touch with iTunes Match, um, and it doesn't always update what I've added to my computer. Um, the play counts don't always update in one direction or another. It's generally flaky. It's not. I, I would be much more comfortable if I could rely on it, and I don't feel that I can rely on it. Funny, my my son just 
yesterday got a brand new MacBook Air. Um, and I said to him, well, make sure you get a good external hard disk for your music collection because he's a music fan. He said, no, 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 iTunes Match, no problem. I've seen corrupted tracks coming from iTunes Match with gaps in them, with noise in them and all that, so I wouldn't trust my music to iTunes Match without a backup. Now, you know, I can't tell my son to listen to me. You know how it is with kids. Um, but yeah, when right. he finds that one of them, when he finds that he can't re-download one of them exactly as it was, he'll understand and he'll probably change his tune. Speaking of match, you and I have the same issue that we have large music libraries, and so we can't match because we have over 25,000 tracks. So what do you do? I mean, do you simply keep a collection for testing purposes and then just not use it? Or do you create a, create a subset or what? Well, what I've done is I, I have a, uh, I use a Mac Mini as my main Mac and I have a, a, a MacBook Pro, which is my sort of air quotes test Mac. Um, so I've created a, an iTunes library on the MacBook Pro. Um, it's a lot easier for me to have a library with, let's see, 10,000 tracks um, for my testing, for my articles, for my books and things like that. Um, this library is on my iPod Touch, which I use fairly often um, when I'm sitting outside, when I'm walking on a treadmill, things like that. I use the iPod Touch. So it does get used. Um, but it, yeah, my main library is you know around 100,000 tracks, and that's on my an external disk connected to my Mac Mini. Um, if anyone from Apple's listening... Dude, come on. Amazon gives you 250,000 tracks in its cloud player, which arguably isn't great. Can't you do better than 25,000? I know that those of us with large libraries are a small percentage, but judging from the number of emails I get, the, the Ask the iTunes Guy emails, that small percentage still represents a fair number of people. You know, I wonder, given how little iTunes Match has changed and the limit has, hasn't budged at all, I wonder if this is just one of those services that Apple put in place and said, good, this is good, and then they've moved on. Well, yes and no. Um, iTunes Match is indirectly linked to iTunes Radio. So if you have an iTunes Match subscription, right. you don't get ads on iTunes Radio. Um, it doesn't seem to me that they're abandoning iTunes Match like anyone remember Ping? <laughs> <laughs> We've, we laughed about that for a while. Um, I don't think they're going to give up on iTunes Match. But I'm very surprised that after two years there hasn't been any changes. Um, if when I rematched a lot of music, it didn't match any better than before, that shows that the back end hasn't changed. I kind of wonder what the future is. And, and I'm almost wondering if iTunes Radio is just one part of a future iTunes subscription service. Well, let's talk iTunes Radio. Okay. I know that you have access to it, yeah. as do I. What do you think? I, when I, well, I'll tell you what I think first of all. When okay. it first came out, I thought it was pretty flaky. Yeah. I thought it's uh, particularly when it created you know, playlists on a Pandora kind of way, it was pretty terrible. Um, last time I looked, it got a little bit better, uh, but it's still not nearly as good as Pandora's uh, algorithm. So what do you think? Well, I don't have Pandora. Um, I, I find that it's useful for certain things. I'll put on a jazz station if I want to listen to some jazz and maybe find something I've never heard because I'm not a I don't know a lot about jazz. Um I've got a number of composer stations. So Johann Sebastian Bach Essentials, um Philip Glass Essentials, Franz Schubert, Steve Reich, etc. I've got a contemporary classical station that I set up 
and that I've been refining, so excluding certain things. In some cases, it's really interesting. It comes up with stuff, it tailors itself over time. In others, I just get the same stuff over and over, um, the same tracks. In the contemporary classical, there are certain albums that I just don't want to hear, and you keep adding one track, one track, one track, until finally you've excluded all the tracks. There's something going on in the background that we don't know too much about, um, and it's that they're trying to push certain tracks on the radio. Because remember, the goal of iTunes Radio is not for you to enjoy music. It's to drive you to the iTunes store. That's why every time you listen to something, there's a button for you to buy whatever you're listening to. And they choose a certain number of tracks that they think are going to get a lot of play or they're more likely to get purchased, and they're going to put them into the rotation. Now, you won't necessarily see these, depending on, you can make a station, um, I've got a Terry Riley station, I've got a Hot Tuna station, um, a Bill Evans station, things like that. Some of them well-known, some of them not well-known. You'll get some where you're going to see a lot of tracks that don't seem to fit, as if they're trying to squeeze something in that's not exactly, doesn't correspond exactly to the idea of the station you want. And that, to me, sounds like things they're trying to push. Um, I honestly, I'll go through phases where I'll listen to it a bit, and then I'll give up because I've heard the same things over and over, and then I'll listen to it again. Um, I kind of like the Bob Dylan station because, like all iTunes radio stations, you make a station around Bob Dylan, you're going to get a handful of Dylan songs, but you'll get related artists. And I like listening to some of the related artists whose music I don't have in my library. It might be Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. It might be Joan Baez or, you know, all those things from the 60s and 70s that I may not have. Um, so I'd say it's hit and miss. Um, in some cases, I find it good. And in others, I'll skip through tracks. Now, you can only skip six tracks per hour on a given station and I find I often hit the skip limit. Yeah, I found it's pretty pretty good for pop stations or pop artists. Um, when I first tried it, I set up a, a JS Bach station and it was awful. Only in that it jumped over about 400 years worth of music. Yeah. So it seemed to be not Bach so much as like who's popular? You know, what does everybody know? Oh, here's some Tchaikovsky. Let's play that well, a different era. Uh, oh, here, here's Ravel. No, honestly, that's that's three hundred years I seem later. To recall, I seem to recall a phrase you used um, on Twitter where you were getting new age piano noodling on your box station. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. I think it's important to understand. Again, we don't know for sure how this works, but what I think is that they're using all of their genius information. So the genius basically looks at your library, uploads it to Apple, says, well, this person has Bach and The Clash and Miles Davis, so someone else who has Bach and The Clash might want to listen to Miles Davis, that kind of thing. Um, So you're going to get related music that doesn't necessarily fit. Um, And I'm not sure that it's necessarily good or bad. It might be good if it's coming out of your own music library and you make a genius playlist and you're thinking oh you know that talking heads track does work really well after that Bach piece but when it's music you're not familiar with it's jarring now the exception is if you choose a classical composer you can get what's called an essential station um, with the name of the composer and that will only play music by that composer so if you just want Bach 
type in Johann Sebastian Bach and choose the one with the yellow cover that says Essentials, and you'll only get Bach. But for the other ones, mm-hmm. I find them, I don't know. If, as you say, for pop is good, if you want to hear the top 50, they've got a weekly top 50 pop station, then that's great for you. Best of 2013 country, it's great. But for people with eclectic music tastes, um, which is you and me and plenty of others, it's probably not the best thing. Before we jump to the next topic, a word about Ting, mobile that makes sense. Now, you've heard me say Ting, mobile that makes sense a couple of times now. So what exactly does that mean? Well, it's pretty simple. Ting is a reseller of the nationwide Sprint network. So if you have any variety of Sprint phone, and that includes an iPhone 4 or 4S, you can use Ting for your cellular connectivity. And why should you? Well, first, because Ting requires no contracts or ETFs. You own your phone, and if you choose to leave, you needn't worry about paying off a contract. Next, you pay for only what you use, and in almost all cases, Ting's prices are less than what you'd pay under a traditional contract. Your bill is straightforward. You pay 6 bucks a month for each device you use, and then you pay for the talk time, messages, and data that you use. And the more you use, the less your minutes, messages, and megabytes cost. Plus, Ting offers great customer support. Almost any Sprint device can make the move to Ting, and you can keep your current number if you like. To get you started, Ting is welcoming Macworld podcast listeners with this special offer. Travel to www.macworld.ting.com, and when you sign up, you'll be given a $25 credit on a new device, or if you already have a device, that same $25 in service credit. And if you need to back out of somebody else's onerous contract, Ting will give you back 25% of your ETF up to $75. Unless you really like flinging money at your current carrier, why wouldn't you give it a try? Once again, back to Kurt. All right, we're going to jump topics again. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about iCloud backups. Um, A month ago or so, you offered tips for iCloud backups. Now, a lot of us now have multiple iOS devices, and Apple gives us a measly 5 gigabytes of free storage. So, any tips on dealing with this? Yeah, um, I give some detailed information in, in the article on Macworld about it. Basically, the first thing you need to know is that the iCloud backup does not back up everything on your phone. I'm going to use the iPhone as an example. It could be an iPod Touch or an iPad. It backs up things that it can't re-download. So any purchased music won't be backed up. Um, No music or videos will be backed up at all because they should be in your iTunes library. Um, What does take up a lot of space is photos and videos that you've made yourself. So if you've got a lot of photos, your best bet is to offload them. Um, every once in a while, clear out your library, put them into iPhoto. You don't need to keep 10,000 photos on your iPhone, I don't think. Um, you'll not run into the limit, and there are, there are different kinds of limits for photos. So the photo stream, I think, can take 1,000 photos for the last 30 days. But other photos that aren't in the photo stream that are in your, your, your photo albums, they get backed up. Um, it's important to know that it's not the music that's taking up space. It's not your apps that are taking up space. Apple assumes that you're going to re-download anything you've purchased. So that's apps, that's purchased music, videos, uh, audio books, e-books, etc. Um, they're only going to back up your settings, which is actually very useful. Um, and they're going to back up 
content that you've created. So these can be files. So if you're using, let's say, pages with iCloud, and you're making a whole bunch of big pages files or keynotes or whatever, um, you want to start cleaning out and moving them onto your Mac and not leaving them onto iCloud as well. Things that you create, files, photos, and all that will get backed up. And it's pretty easy to offload them. You just need to think about doing it occasionally um, to make space. And we're going to jump again. Let's jump. I'm going to... Okay, we're jumping. Uh, because you've jumped. You've jumped out of this com- country, and you're now living abroad, and you have been for quite some time. Yeah. Uh, in France and now in England. So we tend to get a fairly American viewpoint here, because after all, we're Americans, and that's what we think about all the time. Uh, so would you care to offer some perspective on Apple, iTunes, and music from outside the American viewpoint? And by that, I mean, are there things that we in the States take for granted that you find frustrating or limiting? Um, well, you take for granted that you can buy certain TV shows, um, which mm-hmm. generally isn't the case overseas. And, of course, this depends a lot. So I moved from France to England last year, and one of the big differences is that TV is on in England a lot sooner because it doesn't have to be uh, subtitled or dubbed, um, whereas in France it could take months for a TV series to be on. So you'll have a popular TV series on in the U.S., and and it'll be on maybe a week later here in the UK. So people are able to buy that TV series on the iTunes store. In France, it's not the case. France, Germany, Spain, Italy, you know, any non-English speaking country where you've got translation involved, you've got a delay. um, And the delay is twofold. One, it's for things to be translated. But two, it's for local networks who have contracts to broadcast a series to run it first before it's sold. Um, now, there was an exception to this. The last season, the last half of the final season of Lost um, was sold in a number of countries the day after it was on in the States, uh, presumably to thwart piracy, because people on this side of the Atlantic, if they want to see a TV series, they're not going to wait six months for it to be on in their country. They're going to just go to the Pirate Bay. Um, what they were doing is in each country they had teams of translators working overnight, so by the morning they would have a subtitled version that they could put on the iTunes store. Um, Another thing is, well, prices are a little bit higher because you have VAT here. Um, You're able to avoid sales tax over there, so you're you're basically paying about 20% VAT in most European countries, so your prices are going to be higher. Movie availability, it's the same thing. You may have a movie that's already out on DVD in the States, but that hasn't been released in the cinemas here, so you won't get it on the iTunes store. Um, Aside from that, music content is generally the same. Um, In fact, there are a lot of things you can get here that you can't get in the States. There are some copyright rules um, that mostly affect jazz and classical music, but um, do start are starting to affect pop music. Um, co- music performances, if I'm not mistaken, it's a performance, it's not the actual songs, are copyrighted 50 years here. In the States, it's 70 years. It depends on whether it was um, copyrighted by a person or a company. It can be longer. So the Beatles recently released a bootleg with, I don't know, was it 50 tracks that they needed to get out before the 50-year European copyright limited passed so they could get a new copyright on it so it couldn't be re-released. So what happens over here is, and you'll see this in the iTunes store, you'll see it on places like Spotify, um, 
jazz albums that are more than 50 years old, you can buy them very cheap because there are companies who just copy them and sell them. Instead of selling them for eight pounds for an album, they sell them for two pounds. Um, classical music, it's the same thing. There's one record label that was specializing in what classical people call historic recordings, so things are basically old. Um, and they were releasing them around the world until a, a legal decision prevented them from exporting them into the States. So you can buy these on the iTunes store here or on Amazon or in, in CD, and some of them you can't buy in the States because of this copyright law. And then also you don't have access to a lot of services that we have. For example, um, I know you can get to iTunes radio, but uh, people in England can't. No, right? it's not currently available. Um Things like Pandora aren't available. Satellite radio, there's no satellite radio here. Um, what is it, Sirius XM that you get? Which actually, I would almost like to subscribe to that. They've got a great Grateful Dead program and they've got some other stuff. Um, generally, any big service is going to focus on the States first. Spotify, of course, is the exception because it started in Sweden. So it was available in Europe long before it was available in the States. In fact, I wrote about it a couple of years ago before it launched in the States um, because I had it in France and because you didn't have it over there. Now, of course, you do have it. Um, you're going to have some difference in content, as I mentioned before, things that are available here and not there. But in terms of actual subscription services, there are very few that are available. Um, I have Netflix here, but Netflix doesn't exist in France. Um, it, the, the movies and TV, you're going to get more in an English-speaking country, again, because of translating and subtitling. Um, but music, there's a, a very good company called, and I'm, I've never known how it's pronounced, whether it's Cobuz or Quobuz. It's Q-O-B-U-Z. Um, they're a French retailer and distributor, and they do a very good streaming service, which is mainly targeted at classical and jazz listeners because they stream in FLAC, they provide digital booklets. Um, you can get it in France and you can get it in the UK and some Euro European countries, but not in the US yet. So you're going to get more things in the US, but anything that's homegrown over here is going to take a while to get to the US. So for those people who really want this American content, are they using VPN services or is that not a very common thing? Um, well, there's a number of ways you can do it. The, probably the most common is a VPN, so a virtual private network, where you're paying a couple bucks a month to connect to a server which is in the States and which to the American websites looks like it's located in the States. So you can buy MP3s from Amazon US. You can access the iTunes store in the US. Um, you can buy Kindle books in the US and all sorts of things. Um, you can also use a web proxy. They're not too reliable. They're slow. If you're really serious and you really want something, a VPN is, I don't know, was five bucks a month or something. Um, it's a good way to cross borders. And if you're in the States and you want to get something in another country, you can do that too. The companies will frown on this, the companies who provide these services, but there's no way they can really stop them. Um, and the, the percentage of people who do this, it's not, you know, it's a, it's a handful of people. So your work is all over Macworld.com, but you also have a personal blog called Kirkville. So what kind of things do you write about over there? Well, um, I write about what interests me. Um, I write a lot about music, and I'll write about iTunes, but also music that I like. I'm a big classical music fan, as probably a lot of Macworld readers have figured out. Um, I'm a fan of the Grateful Dead, also known as a deadhead. Um, 
I'm an avid reader. I'm very interested in the theater. In fact, I recently moved near Stratford-upon-Avon um, to be able to see Shakespeare plays more often. So I've been reviewing Shakespeare plays in recent months. Um, I'll just write about whatever I'm interested in. Um, I'm just looking in the past week. I wrote a couple things about Spotify. Um, wrote something about how to get a list of apps on your iOS device. Uh, reviewed a DVD of a Shakespeare play, which interestingly is on DVD here, but the play is currently on Broadway because it moved from the UK um, to the States. So people who can't see it on Broadway, you might want to catch it on DVD. Um, I'll review books that interest me. I'll write about classical music, as I said, which is one of my um, big passions. Um, I have basically five categories, tech, music, books, arts, and etc. Etc. doesn't have a lot. Um, but Music, books, Shakespeare, iTunes. I do write a lot about iTunes on my blog. In one particularly interesting article, you talked about digital music sales dropping due to music being freely available from streaming services. Uh, I like streaming services, but I can also see how that's changing how musicians and labels make a living. So what do you think the future holds for the music business? Well, one of the things I pointed out in the article is that Spotify is heavily advertising the fact that this is free. Um, and this, I think, is going to irk the artist because, well, it's not free. You're listening to ads. You're paying with your attention or you're paying the $10 a month for Spotify. Um, I think it's a problem. I think serious music listeners are going to be annoyed enough by the ads that they'll give up and pay the 10 bucks a month. Those in between are going to say, maybe I'm just going to listen to less music, or they'll go to a Pandora-type thing, or they'll use iTunes Radio, which actually, at $25 a year, because that's what you pay for iTunes Match and you get ad-free on iTunes Radio, is a pretty good bargain if you want to listen to the latest pop tunes, but you can't choose to listen to a specific song as when you want, as you can with Spotify. Um, I think the biggest problem is the use of this word free, suggesting that the music has no value. Um, music has infinite value, as you and I both know as music fans and as you know as a musician. Um, we're creating a world where people are learning that music is just like the toothpicks you pick up in a restaurant after a meal, that it's not something you should consider um, spending money on. I, I I actually kind of reflected. I didn't record how much money I spent on music in the past year. Um, I bought a couple hundred CDs. A lot of these are box sets and aren't necessarily expensive. But I'd say I spent 500 bucks easily on CDs in the past 12 months. I could probably listen to most of this on Spotify for $120 a year or be £120 here. But I really like having the music. I like the physical object. I like having booklets, liner notes. I like, even though it's not vinyl and the album covers are small, I like having them. I like having CDs that I can look at and box sets that I can look at, even if I rip almost all of my music. Um, I'm not yet sold on subscription services, yet here's what I'm thinking. If Apple could do it right... I think I would be sold. And here's here's what I miss with something like Spotify. Um, the playlist system isn't very good. They don't have a genius playlist type thing. And it doesn't record your play counts and last played dates. It doesn't really easily record what you've listened to. Is there even a recently listened to 
playlist in Spotify? I don't think I've ever found it. So if I'm listening to, say I listen to, I've been doing a lot of exploring of jazz recently. Say I've been listening to a playlist of some 1950s jazz, and I've heard some stuff that I really like, and I can't find it again. If I had, if iTunes were to stream and keep all that information, recently played and last played and play count and all that, I'd very easily be able to go back and find it, maybe buy it on iTunes, maybe buy it on CD, maybe never buy it again, or maybe just put it in a playlist to more easily remember it. Um, I just find that all these streaming services are too much about the moment and not about getting you to come back and discover music and listen to it again. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's right. I think a, a lot of times I use Spotify and these other services as music in the background. So if I'm entertaining, I've I pulled up a West Coast Pacific Jazz Station or something like that. But for focus listening, I'm not sure it's uh, it's it's a different way of, of listening to music, and I'm not sure that it's ideal for that unless you've gone in and crafted a particular playlist and then saved it, which is something you can do, but it takes effort. Or, unless you've found some people to follow on Spotify who make playlists, um, there's a guy in China, his username is Ulysses Stone, who makes these extraordinary classical playlists on Spotify. And he's got chronological playlists of all these composers and labels and stuff um, because he's totally obsessive, and it's great. I was looking at some jazz playlists, and I found some with some good stuff, but I can't remember everything that I've heard. And if I want to go back and listen to something... I'm going to be scratching my head. Well, what was it that I heard that was so good? You can you can star things, you can put them in a playlist, but for me it just lacks the context to make it a sort of a long-term listening experience. Um, it's great for listening to the latest, well, I was going to say Beyonce, but I don't think her album's on Spotify, but, you know, Miley Cyrus, if you like that. If you know what you want to listen to, Spotify's really good. If you don't, then... You're either stuck with the, because the, they do have radio stations, so you can get a lot of dross in the radio stations, or you've got to search for playlists that people have made, and it just may not be what you're looking for. I just find it a little bit too hard to find what I want. And that, in a nutshell, is the professional and musical life of Kirk McElhern. As I mentioned, his work is all over Macworld.com, and if you can't get enough, again, visit Kirkville, which is at www.macalern.com, which is M-C-E-L-H-E-A-R-N.com, and you can follow Kirk at Macalern on it. Twitter. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Thanks very much for being here, Kirk. Thanks for having me again, Chris. And that wraps up this episode of the Macworld Podcast, brought to you by GoToMeeting, the powerfully simple way to meet online, and Ting, mobile that makes sense. In addition to our sponsors, I'd like to thank Kirk McElhern and, of course, you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, macOS, iOS, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. See you around.